0: The following story has been brought to you by storiestoinspire.org. Several years ago, on a dark night in the city of Hebron, two Israeli soldiers were on patrol. Suddenly they heard a shot ring out. They looked around, they didn't see anything. One soldier says to the next, "Yeah, probably nothing. The oldest, other, other soldier says, no, it's got to be something. It was a gunshot, we got to go find, maybe somebody is hurt. The other fellow says, it's Hebron, there's shots all the time. You're always listening to gunshots. Just because you hear a gunshot doesn't mean something actually happened. And the other soldier says, no, we have to find. Maybe somebody was hurt. And they begin to look through the alleyways of Hebron. They don't find anything. And the other soldier says, come on, it's enough already. And he says, no, if we're on patrol, we're going to find where that shot came from. And maybe someone's hurt. And he begins to run and run and run throughout every single street in Hebron until indeed he finds another member of his patrol unit was shot and was lying on the ground bleeding to death. He lifted him on his shoulders, he took him right away to the camp, rushed him to the hospital, and his life was saved. One would imagine the parents of the saved Israeli soldier want to find the soldier that saved his son's life. And so in the hospital by the emergency room, they asked, where is the soldier that brought him in? He left. Who was he? He asked to be anonymous. What do you mean anonymous? He saved our son's life. We want to hug him, we want to kiss him, we want to thank him, we want to reward him, we want to see him. Sorry. Well, Lee, Lee's parents had a marketplace in Yerushalayim, a store. So they put it up a sign in their store. And they wrote their story. Our son's life was saved, this and this night, in the city of Hebron, by some Israeli soldier who remains a mystery to us. If you know anything about this person, please let us know. Simply we want to just say thank you. That's all we want. And the sign stayed there. Once later, someone's in the store. And he sees the sign, and he reads it. And he's staring at the sign, so the storekeeper, a husband and wife, come over to him and they say, you know something about this? He says, yeah, I know something about this very, very, very much. What do you know? I was on patrol that night in the city of Chevron. I heard the gunshot. I said, let's ignore it. My friend said, we can't. I gave up. He didn't. He ran like a madman through the streets of Chevron, and he found your son. And he saved your son's life because I gave up. So who is he? He's very shy. He doesn't want his identity known. He doesn't want a big deal made about him. But I'm going to go to him tonight. And I'm going to tell him how important it is for you that they have this need simply to say thank you. Nothing else. No reporters. No news. Simple thank you. And I'll see if I can convince him to do it. A few hours later, he returns with another soldier. This is the fellow that saved your son's life. They embrace him, and they hug him, and they thank him. And The soldier says, stop, stop. The only reason I came here is to share a story with you. When my friend told me where he saw this sign, I felt I needed to come and talk to you. Many years ago, there was a young couple that got married. They were having an extremely difficult time. He was laid off from a job. They had no money. They lived off whatever welfare the government could give them. And they would go to a particular grocery store. That's where they would do their shopping. And the sweet couple that owned this grocery store took a liking to this couple. And one time they asked them, how come you don't have children? How come no baby stroller? And the woman said, we're poor. And if we bring a child into the world, how are we going to feed the child? How are we going to buy clothes? We don't have any money. We're unemployed. We have nothing. And the man said to this couple, oh, come on baby will bring blessings to your life. A baby will bring tremendous amount of spiritual energy that will translate into material blessings. Don't hold back from bringing the greatest gift into this world. Go have a baby. And until then, and until God provides for you, and until you have a job, you can come to this market anytime you want and take what you need. No fees. No prices. Now go make a baby. And the man says, that couple were my parents, and I'm the baby, and you're the reason I'm here. And when I heard that the sign was hanging in this store, the store that brought me into this world, it then dawned on me, I'm not sure if your son's guardian angel was knocking on my door that night saying, don't stop, don't stop, or perhaps it was my guardian angel that said, you need to repay a debt. Go find the soldier that's been shot. In April of 1944, the Nazis in entered the once vibrant city of Munkacs to round up all the Jews and place them into ghettos. A month later, they were forced into boxcars on their way to Auschwitz. Among those on board on this journey was a 17-year-old boy named Shlomo Zalman. It was in the middle of the night when the trains arrived at this most horrible place on earth. Hundreds of men, women, and children were herded off the train and told to stand on this infamous line. Shlomo had no clue where he was, why he was there, what this was all about. And he also had absolutely no idea what this line meant and what the man on the front of the line that were pointing some people to the right and some people to the left, what that meant. Suddenly from out of the, out of the darkness, a man, a skeleton of a man, rushes up to him, grabs him by his arms and whispered to him in Yiddish, In what year were you born? I was born in 1927, the boy said. No, you were not. You were born in 1925. And don't forget it. What year were you born? 1925. Good. And he raced off. A few minutes later, the boy was at the front of the line, and he was asked a question. What year were you born? 1925. He was motioned to the right. It was only days later that he found out that the cutoff age was 18 years old. Anyone under 18 that night were executed that night. The boy Shleim Azalman would survive Auschwitz and two other camps. He lives today in Los Angeles. His name is Saul Teichman. And Saul Teichman has his name on yeshivas and day schools and mikvahs all over the country. He has devoted himself to rebuilding the Jewish world. And not a day goes by that he doesn't think about this encounter of this mysterious man. A man he never saw again. Was he an angel? Shlomo Zalman, Salt Heishman doesn't know. But perhaps, perhaps he was even a greater angel. A human being acting like an angel. A human being acting with goodness and caring about another human being. And that's what I'd like to focus on. Human beings who transcend their own selves and come to us as angels. Elie Wiesel once finished giving a lecture in a certain city when he was approached by one of the members of the audience. And she says, I'm sure you've been asked the question all the time, and I know it's a long shot, but you said when you talked that you were in Buchenwald, my father was also in Buchenwald around the same time, did you know my father? And he asked the name, and she said the name of her father. And Elie Wiesel begins to cry. He says, did I know your father? Did I know your father? We shared bunks together. you know what your father did the entire time that we were there? Your father sang songs. And the woman smiles because she knew that's all her father ever did was always sing songs. Even there, Elie Wiesel said, he sang songs. That's all he would do. He said, every day life got worse and worse, Wiesel said. There was nothing left to live for. And so like many, I contemplated suicide. And I got hold of some poison, a pill that I would be able to take and end it all. And I decided, let's end this. This is ridiculous. This is not life. There's nothing to live for. It's only sadness and horror and pain. I'm going to end it. So one day I went to the bunk in the middle of the day, and that's where I was going to end my life. And I walk in, and what do I find? I find your father. And he's singing. And he's singing songs of my youth. And I said, how can you sing at a place like this? And your father turned to me and he said, Ellie, all we have is our song. And our song they cannot take away from us. These animals can take away our limbs, they can take our bodies, but they cannot take away our song. Don't ever let them take away our song. I'm alive today, Elie Wiesel says to this woman, because of your father. Human beings that act as angels. In 1940, as Hitler was tightening his net of evil and madness around Eastern Europe, and Jews were running for their lives. Many made their way to Lithuania. Lithuania at the time was annexed by the Soviet Union. Thousands more came from Poland to seek refuge. The people could see the writing on the wall. The Nazis would soon invade and they would be captured as well. Someone discovered a loophole. And they discovered through the Dutch and Soviet councils that would be able to grant the Jews of Lithuania safe haven out if only they would somehow get hold in their hands of a Japanese visa. How do you get a Japanese visa? The Japanese consulate at the time in Lithuania was a one-man operation administered by a very humble man named Chiyun Sugihara. Someone approached Chiyun Sugihara and explained, all the Jews here were going to be murdered. The only way our lives can be saved is if you issue us a Japanese visa that will allow us out of Lithuania, that would give us safe haven, and we could survive. Chiyun Sugihara writes that he had a discussion with his wife. The two of them talked it over. They took a look at the refugees. They knew that their government would say absolutely not. And in their own words, I may have to disobey my government, but if I don't, I would be disobeying God. And so from July 31st until August 28th, 1940, Shiyun Sugihara sat for hours signing visas, hour after hour, day after day. He wrote them with his own hands, knowing that his days were going to be numbered in the consulate. as soon as his government would find out what he would do, he wouldn't sleep. His wife would massage his hands as he would continue to write. Right hand, she would massage the right hand, he would write with the left, back and forth. She would feed him food while he sat and wrote so he shouldn't stop writing. He had but a few hours sleep each night so that he'd continue writing visas. Eventually, the Japanese government got wind of his actions and they ordered his transfer to Berlin. Up until the very last minute, he didn't stop writing visas. On the car ride over to the train station, he continued to write and throw them out the window to the Jewish people racing around his car. When he got to the train station, he continued to write visas, throwing the visas out the window of the train, and in the last minute taking the actual Japanese stamp and throwing that out the window as well. Every one of those visas turned into a life saved. 6,000 Polish Jews were issued those visas and survived. The second largest number of Jews saved during World War II. In 1945, the Japanese government unceremoniously dismissed Chiyun Sugihara from diplomatic service. They exiled him and his family for being disobedient against his government. It was only in later years that this man would receive the recognition he deserved. You see, the last visa that got out of that train window fell into the hands of someone that became a Knesset member later in the Israeli government. And he was determined to find who was that man. The rest of the people that received these visas had no idea who Chiyun Sigihara was, what his name was, why he did this, whatever happened to him. It was a mystery until later on, until this Knesset member found him and brought his story out. And in 1985, he was honored in Yad Vashem. A postscript to the story, those of you that were with me yesterday, when I talked about the train at my father's yeshiva, how he missed that train and how he, had he got on that train, he wouldn't have survived. What happened to that group of students? They made their way to Lithuania. On August 15th, 1940, Chiyun Sugihara issued visa number 1778 to a 17-year-old yeshiva boy named Mordechai Brzezinski, my father. I had the opportunity in my life to meet and befriend Chiyun Sugihara's son, Hiroki Sugihara. We became close friends. And Hiroki gave over to me copies of visas that his father saved. His father saved lists of every single visa he gave out. You know what it's like to look at a piece of paper and see Visa 1778 issued on the day it was issued and have your father's name there. In the years, the past, we had Hiroki speak throughout the country about his father, about his mother, about their heroics. Unfortunately, Hiroki passed away two years ago of an illness. Angels. Angels in It's human beings disguised as angels. They come to us, they do things that others do not do, they put their lives on the line. We have estimated that today there are 45,000 descendants of Sugihara survivors. 45,000 living Jews today because of one man. So we only need to take a few moments and think about the angels in our lives. Who are they? Who are the angels in your life? Enjoyed this story? Come again. Bring a friend, storiestoinspire.org.